Marathon runners don't run marathons because it's easy. There are dimensions of running 26.2 miles that is challengingly delightful. This past week, the British Marathon, Northumberland, England. It was a normal race. In fact, there wasn't a whole lot of fanfare, except for the fact that Ron Sloan was awarded third place and then stripped of his trophy because it was discovered that early in the race, he got in an automobile, drove to the end, got out, hid behind a tree. When the first couple runners went past him, he jumped out and finished the race and claimed his third place trophy. But when he was confronted, after denying it a few times, Ron Sloan did fess up to it. He was embarrassed. And I looked it up. Five newspapers around the world carried the article. None of the articles said who came in first. None of the articles said who came in second. The only story was that a guy faked it. He was deceitful and stripped of his title. This morning we come to the book of James, one of the most practical books in the Bible. It's been called the New Testament book of Proverbs. It's written much like Jewish wisdom literature. But it's all about keeping us as Christians from cutting corners, cheating ourselves, faking it. It calls forth the best in us so that we do finish the race and don't get disqualified. Please turn with me. It's right after the book of Hebrews. It's one of the last books in the Bible. Uh, this year we're studying our way through the Bible. And um, we've got three more New Testament books to go in this, this run. We're going to do 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Then we're going to go back to where we left off in the Old Testament. And leading up to Christmas, we're going to do Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, the week before Christmas, the book of Job. Christmas Sunday will be the book of Psalms. New Year's Day will be the book of Proverbs. And we're going to go right through uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. We're going to go right through the whole Old Testament. It will take us through May. Then June, we're going to finish up with four books in the New Testament, First and Second Peter, Jude, and Revelation. We've got from five phone calls to the office this past week saying, How come you're not doing First and Second Peter? They're my favorite books. And we had to explain we're saving the best till last. So just be patient, we'll get there. But this morning the book of James, written by a man with the name Jacob or James. 
There are three New Testament people with the name James. James, the son of Zebedee, James, the son of Alphaeus, and James, the half-brother of Jesus. It's the third of those, the half-brother of Jesus, who writes this book. It's the book in the New Testament. Of all 21 letters written in the New Testament, it's the one that sounds the most like Jesus. In fact, if you were to take the Sermon on the Mount and lay out the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and lay out underneath it the book of James, all 108 verses of the five chapters of the book of James. There are 22 points where the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' famous speech, is reflected or explicitly uh, dealt with in the book of James. In fact, all eight of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed all eight of them are embedded in the book of James. It's the book most like Jesus' teaching. The book of James, though it's one of the last books in the sequence in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, it's the first book written in the New Testament. The book of James. How do we know that? There are many reasons we know that. We know that James, first of all, let me just give a little background on the person who's writing this book. James, the half-brother of Jesus, we know from the Gospel of John chapter 7, did not know Jesus Christ's identity during, uh, before Jesus died. Uh, some of his brothers and sisters took an offense at Jesus, at some of the claims Jesus was making. And James was one who did not believe in Jesus while Jesus was living. And you can imagine could you imagine having Jesus as your brother and all the, the, that would go with that? Here he's your brother, but he's really your half-brother because Joseph was not his father. And, and this is, you're dealing with a guy who's fully man, but he's also fully God. It's like, how do you, what do you deal? How do you deal with that as your half-brother? Imagine the complexities of trying to wrap your mind around that, facing challenges that no one else would have faced the way James did. But we learn that when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared on at least 12 different occasions. He appeared to the women. He appeared to those two who were hiking on the road of Emmaus. He appeared to the disciples without Thomas. He appeared to the disciples with Thomas. He appeared to more than 500 at one time. 500 people. He appeared to the disciples again on the Mount of olives and he appeared to james don't you love it i love that i love it that jesus would appear to james part of the reason is because god had big things in store for james and james needed to see that while he was his half-brother he was also much more the other half was god and, and so Jesus gave him the blessing of a personal resurrection appearance. It does not say it, but I can guarantee you James was in the upper room at Pentecost. 
The reason that had to have been true is because nobody else is mentioned um, by name. And so it's, 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 it's no wonder his name it does not appear. But he must have been because James became the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. James was also the theologian in charge of the theological council that hammered out a lot of the early doctrines of the Christian faith. When Paul came back from three years in Saudi Arabia, he met with James. Why? Because James was a key leader of the church early on. We also know something else about James. There were three writers who wrote uh, around 100 A.D. who recorded the actual death of James. And what happened was, James, who was known as a man of prayer, history calls him camel knees. Camels that often kneel in the desert have these thick knees. James was camel knees because he was such a man of prayer. But when he his life ended, the Jewish leaders took him up to the top of the temple. This is well before the temple was destroyed, obviously. He was taken up to the top of the temple and they forced him to deny his faith in Jesus Christ. Well... <clears throat> History records that he looked at them and smiled and in a loud voice said, Jesus is the Son of God. It's the last thing he said. And they pushed him over and he fell to his instant death. That's James. That was about 46 A.D. This book was obviously written before he died. So it puts it at one of the earliest books in the New Testament, most likely the earliest. The other thing that we see is there was very little structure of the church. There were no deacons yet. None of them were referred to. He's dealing with basic things like who should be the teacher. And so he says in James 3, 1, Let not many of you become teachers, because you who teach will be judged with greater strictness. In almost every chapter, he deals with heresy and with those who are trying to lead people astray. All that was happening in the early church because there was not yet the structure to deal with it. So you're, he's dealing with things that were very young in church history. Well, you put all of that together, and now we come to this incredible book of the New Testament. This written by the half-brother of Jesus. And one of the amazing things is never does James refer to the human Jesus. He never says, now when I grew up with Jesus, he doesn't ever go there. Because none of that matters. James in his book, brief book, he refers to God specifically 16 times, to Jesus five times. He calls Him Lord, Master. He refers to His second coming. Now isn't it amazing that here He was the younger half-brother of Jesus, never refers to His humanity 
only refers to his deity in the first verse. James, a servant of God and of Jesus Christ. Putting the Father and the Son on the same par. I'm a servant of the Father. I'm a servant of the Son. What a what an incredibly humble posture for James to take. Uh, some of you may know that the theologian Martin Luther called James the epistle of straw. Well, Luther wasn't perfect. Give him a little slack. He didn't think that this book belonged in the Bible because Luther was so strong on salvation by faith and not by works, he thought James blurred the distinction, which of course wasn't true, but that was his perspective. Now what we want to do this morning, because James is such a book of faith, Chapter 1 is faith tested. Chapter 2 is faith active. Chapters 4 and 5, or I'm sorry, 3 and 4 is faith expressed. And chapter 5 is faith evidenced. But let's take it one chapter at a time. Chapter 1, faith tested. Verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you encounter trials of many kinds. If it's a family trial, if it's a financial trial, if it's a physical trial, if it's a persecution over your faith trial, whatever trial you're facing, consider it pure joy. Because you know that the testing of your faith, and it goes on to say what happens when faith is tested. Chapter 1 is all about the testing of our faith. This morning I had a live illustration. One of our senior saints, Margaret Helig, had a terrible fall three weeks ago. She stumbled and fell face first. She was bleeding profusely from her forehead, from her eyes, and she still bears uh, the black and blue marks across her, her eyes. Um, somewhat of a raccoon look, if you're with me. She came in this morning, her first Sunday back in church. She was rejoicing. She, fred, she, said, she said, Pastor, do you know how fortunate I am? Do you know how God gave His angels charge over me? She said, women half my age break something when they have a fall like that. I didn't break a single bone. Here she's looking at me like this, rejoicing. I said, Margaret, you're a better sermon than what I'm going to preach this morning. You are counting it all joy. Aren't you thankful to be part of a church family where we've got senior saints that are setting the pace for the rest of us? Counting it pure joy. It's the testing of our faith. Now, by the time you come to the end of chapter 1, there's two things I want to just pick up before we get to the end. One of them in the middle, it says, do not be simply hearers of the word, but be doers. Just as Mr. Sloan was disqualified from the British Marathon because he cut corners. James wants to make sure we don't cut corners. 
Don't just be hearers of the Word, but be doers. And then it describes the Word. It's the only place where the Bible describes itself as a mirror. A mirror. Now, the beauty of this particular mirror of the Word of God. I want you to get this picture. Imagine your Bible being a mirror. When you look in the mirror, sometimes when we look in the mirror, it's to tell ourselves how good we look. Who's ever looked in the mirror just to see, man, I look good. I'm looking good. I mean, come on. Now, we've all done that. You walk by. I mean, some people have an expression on their, their, their lips do this thing when they know they're looking good. You know what I'm talking about? You just walk by and you say, oh, yeah, check. But most often when we look in the mirror, it's to make sure something isn't messed up. That we don't have a carrot between our teeth. You know what I'm saying? Well, the mirror of God's Word will often show us the imperfections in ourselves. Are you with me? To see what isn't so hot. What we need to work on. And at times, this mirror becomes one of those mirrors, when God feels like it, He will flick a switch. And we get to see through the mirror to Him on the other side. Isn't that awesome? That's the mirror of God's Word. It shows us us for who we really are. And it shows us once we can see through it to see the Lord on the other side. That's the mirror of God's Word. James chapter 1 is the only place in the Bible where it describes the Bible as a mirror. And that's how it works. To check out how we're doing. Now we come to the end of chapter 1 and it begins a new section on the proof of our faith. It's the, it starts with the testing of our faith and it moves to the proof of our faith. Verse 26. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Now listen to the description of true, authentic faith. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This deals with the ethical and the moral. Ethical relates to our social lives And the moral has to do with our inner thoughts, attitudes, and integrity. True faith is proven outwardly in our ethics and inwardly in our morals. Widows and orphans have one thing in common, particularly in the first century. They were completely at the mercy of others. And if you served them, you would get nothing in return. You see, if you mow your neighbor's lawn, you know one day they'll mow your lawn. If you take baked goods to your neighbors, you know it's highly likely one day they'll bring you baked goods. 
If you swap uh, Christmas gifts in the office, you give to one knowing that they'll probably give you one back. But what sets this apart is in the first century, if you served a widow or an orphan, you could be guaranteed that they would do nothing for you in return. It was purely to serve them. You see, what James is concerned about is our street credibility. I wish God could put that phrase in our spirit. Street credibility. Mr. Sloan lost street credibility when he cut corners and did not run the entire British Marathon. Many Christians lose street credibility when they try to cut corners and don't live out the Christian faith in those arenas where they're called upon and given opportunity to do for others who will never be able to do back in return. And then the second half, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Brothers and sisters, this is no newsflash that our culture is increasingly corrupt. What is now common on television and in movies out of Hollywood is full of corruption. We dare not take the standard for our moral lives from cues from Hollywood. The place we take it from is God's Word. And only God's Word can call us to that level of moral integrity. It's the proof. It's the proof of our authentic faith. To run the race that's marked out for us. Not taking shortcuts. Almost every chapter in the book of James deals with the poor. And caring for the needy. In fact, I think it would do us best. I'm going to leave you the rest of you've got the sermon notes. That's part of why we do this. But I just, it's on my heart right now, if I may. Wow. Um, I'm feeling what Cliff felt when he was up here calling for parents to be involved. Could you feel what he was feeling? There was, he had that. I have that right now. I have this thing like there's something God wants to deposit among us with the poor. I'm not sure what we as a church have done too well for the poor. In fact, um, even in saying the poor, there can be a condescending spirit even in that. Oh, they're the poor. Them other people. But James keeps calling us back. Chapter 2 begins with this really rebuke to showing favoritism to the rich over the poor. And it goes on to unpack that 
as if we show partiality to rich people over the poor people, if we pander or gear the way we do Christianity to meet the needs of the rich, we really disqualify ourselves from running the race. And out of that, he says, what good is it if a man claims to have faith but does not have works? Suppose, and and then again, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and without daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, be warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? There it is again. This thing about connecting with the needy. And the whole faith without works is dead teaching that follows all the way through chapter 2. It's all in light of this connecting with the needy. Chapter 3 and 4 is the expression of our faith. And how flip we can be with the tongue. Um, there's no easier way to meddle while you're preaching than to preach on the tongue. James didn't back down. It's some of the most extensive teaching on the proper use or misuse of the tongue anywhere in the Bible is right here. About gossip. About blessing God and singing our songs and then getting out here in Atlantic traffic and cursing at the people who, who zip past us. How can we bless God and curse our, uh, the people that, that, that drive with us or live next to us? And then chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 4, is one of the places in the New Testament that takes the Old Testament concept of spiritual idolatry, which is spiritual adultery, and applies it to our lives as New Testament Christians, that we can become all too friendly with the world system and make ourselves an enemy of God. It's all about being disqualified from the race. It's all about taking shortcuts. Then chapter 5. Again, look at verse 1. Now listen, you rich people. He gets downright nasty. There's a scolding tone in his voice. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. These are, this is harsh. This is talking to the haves who are not sharing well with the have-nots. Then it moves from those who are financially in want to those who are physically in want. Verse 13. The sick. Let the sick come. And you elders, don't disassociate yourself with the sick. Jesus set a perfect example. He reached out His hand to touch the leper, the blind. He even got right down next to a dead person 
and call them back to life. Don't distance yourself from the physically needy. And then the last verse in the whole book of James. Remember then, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. It's the morally and spiritually wayward. Those who don't come anymore to life group, we go after them. Or people that we used to see sitting with us in church who don't sit next to us anymore to go get them. Do you see that the whole book of James is a call to the haves. You have faith, turn around and go get those that don't. You have money, go turn around and get those who don't. You have health, turn around and go get those that don't. You have spiritual walk with God, turn around and go get those who don't. It's like, Lord, I'm convicted. I'm convicted. Sometimes I preach and it's a nice little put a bow around it, say a poem, bless the people and off you go. This is not one of those days for me. This is a very searching message. I feel God like really talking loudly to me. And when that happens, it's hard for me to preach. But I just want you to know, this message is really searching me. You all know I work hard. I don't have to prove that. But on this one, I have not done well. But it is in me to do better. And I thank God for many of you who are setting great examples for the rest of us in this area. But we all need to do better. God wants our faith to be real. He wants our religion to have an authenticity to it. He wants us to live our lives so that any skeptic, any agnostic, any Hindu, any Muslim who lives around us will say, I may not agree with them doctrinally, but I I can't help but admire what they do for needy people. Brothers and sisters, for those of us who have been Christians for 25 years or longer, you have seen with me that Christianity in North America tried to force its agenda on our country, and that has not worked, because Christianity doesn't work well from the top down. It's time that we completely revamp the way we do things. We want to serve people. Jesus said you want to be the greatest, you be the servant of all. We are not to put our agenda on our culture. Vote for whoever you want. Lobby for the right person for office. But my hope is not in elected officials. My hope is in the church of Jesus Christ. The the, the church of Christ is the hope of America. It's the hope of the world. It's the hope of the nations. It's the church. No, we need to quit trying to tell people what they ought to do and we need to start demonstrating true Christianity. And when we start meeting needs and solving other people's problems, they're going to stop and listen. Okay, that's enough preaching. Jolie, come on back. Lord, help us. Help us. Help me, Lord. Plant Your Word deep in my heart and the heart of our church family that we would be doers of the Word. 
Lord, please don't let us say, okay, next Sunday we're going to be on to this book. Maybe we ought to spend a month in James. Maybe we, we need to roll up our sleeves and learn how to meet the needs of needy people around us. Lord, to whom much is given, much is required. So hold us accountable and find us faithful. In Jesus' name.